Hello, and welcome to Marshmallows by the Hellfire, where we take the Divine Comedy and use it as a stepping stone to theological discussions and debates. And today, we are going to discuss uh, Dante meeting Homer in the afterlife, and discuss that dichotomy between pagan characters, pagan stories being in Christian fiction and ideas from pagan stories such as magic that make more sense in paganism being in Christian fiction and what we what we should make of all this. So come grab some marshmallows, come by the hellfire, and let us explore Canto 4 of the Divine Comedy. Behold that shade whose right hand wields the sword, my worthy teacher thus began to say. Who comes before the others as their lord? Homer, the sovereign poet, is that soul. Horace, the satirist, comes after him. Ovid comes third, and Lucan is the last. Because we came together in that name of poet, which the one soul spoke alone, they do me honor, and in this do well. So here, I think we have a very interesting moment in the Divine Comedy. Uh, we are in Limbo, which is still considered part of the Inferno, but it's for those souls that were virtuous and good, but didn't have saving faith. And I want to reflect a bit, not so much on, you know, the, the spiritual fate of those who lived before the coming of Christ. Um, lots of ink has been spilled on that. Catholic Answers, I'm sure, has lots of stuff on that. What I'm more interested in here that I think is more relevant to our current culture is here we have a Catholic book uh, a Cath honoring several pagans and pagans who wrote poems, epic poems in the case of Homer, uh, that featured pagan ideas, pagan deities, but still, even though, you know, they're placed in limbo because, you know, they didn't have saving faith, you know, they honor me and this do well. And I think that's an interesting claim. And it's, I think, one that we still wrestle with today. You know, we, we see great works of, of fiction that have shaped generations, you know, or at least my generation in the case of Harry Potter, that, that feature magic as a storytelling device or feature other elements that that make more sense in a pagan universe than a, a Christian one. And the question comes, should we honor and respect Dungeons and Dragons, Harry Potter, and all the rest? Or does engaging with these works of fiction uh, create problems for us? I think that the, the answer is a bit more nuanced than what either side would say. The Some people will say, oh, Harry Potter is just good fun, everything is great. And another side will be like, burn it all down. You know, we don't want any, you know, the Bible says magic is bad. And, you know, we should just get rid of it. And here, I, I think Dante offers us a third path. He respects that... His culture, Roman culture, was shaped by these epic poems, and that for any number of ways they fell short, they also were what the Roman culture had to shape themselves, to inculcate at least natural virtues, 
and to some extent these ideals of heroism civilization did create at least a foundation for the the coming of of christ you know into that culture but he's also aware that these ideas these stories these poems fall short and so that's why if, if we view the the presence of these poets in limbo as representing not necessarily solely or only or even primarily the exact spiritual fate of Homer and the rest, but the the kind of the state of these works of, of art. They're, they're not consigned to hell, they're not consigned to heaven. And I can imagine the rebuttal, well, if they're not, you know, in heaven, why not just you know, purge them anyway, because, you know, we can find stuff that is of heaven, you know, why, why, why keep these, these stories around? And I, that's the topic I want to explore today. You know, should we respect pagan uh, stories, pagan tropes, and should we use them in fiction today? Or should we be skeptical of this? So this, this podcast, jumping from Dante meeting these pagan poets, is going to kind of hash out that debate amongst Christians as to whether or not pagan story tropes should be kept around in our culture. Could they be repurposed to the gospel in some way, or is this always a bad idea? And I think the first argument people would say on the, the pro- magic storytelling side is magic isn't real it can't hurt us maybe it could have caused problems in a pre-scientific age but we're good rationalists now magic doesn't exist and i'd like to read a few bible verses that i think are rebuttals to this so moses and aaron went unto pharaoh and did as the lord commanded and Aaron took the rod before pharaoh and his servants and it was turned into a serpent. And Pharaoh called the wise men and the magicians, and they also, by Egyptian enchantments and certain secrets, did in like manner. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not hearken to them as the Lord commanded. And I bring this up to say that Christians don't disbelieve in magic. Magic is something that is real. And it's worth noting that it can be seen as real in two ways. For the father of lies, the, the mind is its own place, and it is better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. If you believe the mind is its own place, you don't really care if it's an actual serpent or an illusion of a serpent, whether it's the illusion of, the illusion of magic is magic, if you have that worldview. If you believe that narrative and will can conquer truth itself then the illusion of magic is magic uh, from that point of view but there is also an instance in the bible of magic by the divine permission because god has full control over the laws of the universe and they can only be suspended by his permission and he would only do so if he sees a way to draw good out of 
the attempted witchcraft, and we'll explore that story next because I think it's, it's interesting to this debate. So Saul in the Bible consults a medium. And Saul swore unto her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord liveth, there shall no evil happen to thee for this thing. And the woman, the medium, said to him, Whom shall I bring up to thee? And he said, Bring me up, Samuel. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice and said to Saul, Why hast thou deceived me? For thou art Saul. And the king said to her, Fear not, what hast thou seen? And the woman said to Saul, I saw gods ascending out of the earth. And he said to her, What form is he of? And she said, An old man cometh up, and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul understood that it was Samuel, and he bowed himself with his face to the ground and adored. And Samuel said to Saul, Why hast thou disturbed my rest that I should be brought up? And Saul said, I am in great distress, for the Philistines fight against me, and God is departed from me, and would not hear me, neither by the hand of prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called thee, that thou mayest show me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why actest thou me, seeing the Lord has departed from thee, and is gone over to thy rival? For the Lord will do to thee as he spoke by me, and he will rend thy kingdom out of thy hand, and will give it to thy neighbor David. Because thou didst not obey the voice of the Lord, neither didst thou execute the wrath of his indignation upon Amalek. Therefore hath the Lord come down to thee what thou hast suffered today. So here we have an instance of, of magic working, right? And the theologian, again, knowing that God is full control of the laws of the universe, uh, but God sees at the very least this attempt to do magic and s decides that he will permit this sin to actually work because it will give Saul another, or rather Samuel, Samuel another opportunity to prophesize to Saul. So... Saul's goal in this is to find a way around God. He knows that, and that's the meaning of the story. Saul knows that Samuel has prophesied that David will become king, and Saul doesn't like that answer, so he's churning the magic to try and find a loophole, and all the magic does is further reinforce the divine will. He gets just another confirmation that there is no way to go around the divine decrees. And so, it, it, this actually, I think, summarizes the, the Christian view of magic very well. It doesn't, strictly speaking, not exist, at least the attempt to do it does, the attempt to do it exists. And again, from the point of view of the devil, you know, the illusion of a snake might as well be a snake. The mind is its own place. The, the narrative is more important than the truth. And also... Now, God, in his own good reason, may be willing to let the laws of physics be suspended if, if that's going to just further teach us something. And so here you see magic working, and precisely in it working is God's you know, original judgment affirmed. You know, Saul succeeds in summoning Samuel, but doing that doesn't really alter the, the power of prophecy. The, the decision has been made as to whether you know, David will become king or not. 
So that's argument one. So to, to recap, argument one is magic doesn't exist, therefore there's no harm in using it. And we, we realize that that's, that's either not true or it deserves an asterisk next to it. Uh, because we see in the Bible that in some sense, you know, the, the, the magicians of Pharaoh by their arts can do the same. And so now let's go to argument two on the, the pro-magic side. Argument two would be, okay, well, yeah, for, for Satanists and crazy people, yeah, they might dabble in magic. But most of us are good rationalists. And, you know, the pagan world's a thing of the past, so no real harm can be done uh, by using magic and storytelling. And the rebuttal to this argument is found... You know, you go into Barnes Noble about halfway th through, turn left. You you arrive in the pagan pagan aisle, right? And I've talked to a Barnes and Noble employee, and they say that the items most commonly stolen are the Bible and the tarot decks. And you know, so that's that's what people are stealing most. They're looking for some sort of spiritual solace. And some of them are turning to the Bible, which is good, which is good. You know, perhaps, we, you know, I'm not going to judge someone stealing the Bible too harshly. If, if they wanted the Bible, I think they should know there's plenty of ways to get a Bible for free without stealing it. But, you know, I, I, I will give them points for at least turning to the Bible. But some are stealing the tarot decks, right? So... You know, we're not all good rationalists, and paganism is making a comeback. So we can't really say that, well, magic's a thing of the past, so we can repurpose it narratively, you know, in fun stories. You know, it's not a thing of the past. It is still present in our culture today. If I might tell a bit of a personal story here to show why, why this all matters, there's someone I know whom I love, going to keep this very anonymous, who recently passed from cancer and um, he during some of his last weeks he spent a lot of time talking about this one fortune teller he met at a fair and he he gave the fortune teller a, uh, you know a dollar or whatever mostly just to get rid of her and, you know he said you know she was you know trying to get customers and he more mostly just because she was being a pest to get rid of her said all right fine you know go ahead and tell my fortune but apparently like throughout his life she got several things right and you know prophecy after prophecy she made uh car crashes down i think to the color of the car uh, you know were were uh accurate at least as as he reported it and the last prophecy was related to old age i forgot what old age and sadly you know that was the one prophecy that didn't come true and you know he did pass from his cancer battle and i imagine some people would say well you know if if this prophecy gave him some hope you know is that a good thing and i I, I think that the psychological impact was a net negative because, uh, yeah, I think the psychological impact was a net negative because, you know, he wanted that last prophecy to come true and, 
and it didn't, right? And I'm aware a good rationalist would say, well, you know, he, he was looking for hope. He was probably just remembering, you know, you know, if you're, if you get into a car crash and you remember five years back, you went to this fair, how good is your memory of that prophecy? Maybe you're, you know, maybe you're reading into it details that weren't there. You know, you can uh, psycho, you know, psychoanalyze this away so that you maintain the belief that magic isn't real. The Christian has no need to do that. Uh, it's perfectly possible that this medium did have some sort of access to information she probably should not have been accessing, and that information was just accurate enough to, to raise false hopes, you know, that, at least in my view, was a, a net negative. And so, and I, I bring up this story, you know, and again, I'm keeping things anonymous, but I'm bringing it up because I do think there is something at stake here when we debate about magic. So that brings us to, I think, a third argument, and to kind of tell this third argument, I'm going to actually tell a, a story that has probably impacted your childhood, whether you know it or not. So a woman one day came to a priest and told him a fantastic story. She said that while she was in the woods, some sort of dark presence uh, troubled her in her nightmares. And ever since then, uh, she's discovered that she has mysteriously become pregnant. And now when she sleeps, she has further nightmares of the child, this, this strange, kind of the inversely of immaculately conceived child in her womb, becoming the Antichrist, you know, of the world in flames, of, you know, doom coming upon the human race because of the, the unclean thing in her womb. And the priest um, believes her. And I'm not sure exactly why he chose to believe her, but he believed her, and a good thing he did believe her. And he says, well, if the Antichrist is in your womb, uh, there's only one way to avert this catastrophe. The millisecond the child is born, we need to baptize him immediately. And in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, immediately when the child is born, you must do that immediately. And if we do that, you know, the child's soul will be claimed for Christ and we can perhaps, you know, steal this Antichrist, you know, to, to the side of light. And the woman says, okay, uh, that's what we will do. And unfortunately for the priest and the woman, uh, there's an evil judge in the land. The evil judge wants to enforce sexual purity, sees that this woman is pregnant, and that it clearly did not come through marriage means, concludes some form of adultery must have occurred, and throws her in prison. So now she has, you know, the Antichrist in her womb, and she's in prison. But the priest, you know, realizing that the judge, wanting to save the woman's life on one hand, and also realizing the judge doesn't realize what fire he's playing with, you know, goes to the judge and says, on, on humanitarian grounds, you know, let's delay any trial until the child is born. And the judge 
you know, who I imagine feared neither God nor man, who was a terrible judge like the one in the Bible. But he agrees to this at the very least because the priest keeps asking. And so nine months pass. There's a midwife in the jail cell and the child is born. Immediately uh, she baptizes him in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And the child stands up on his two feet, thanks everyone very much for the baptism, and says, don't worry, mommy, you know, thank you for saving my soul. I'm very, very grateful for that. And I'm going to, I'm going to get you out of this mess. I'm going to get you out of this mess. It's going to be fine. And why are you looking at me so surprised? You know, haven't you seen a talking baby before? And the mother's like, well, yes, I've seen a talking baby before, but not, not in the first month. And so she knows she has a very special baby. And you know, the, the the birth has occurred, meaning the evil judge is like, all right, we can have our trial now. You know, you're on trial for impurity. She brings this woman onto the, the courtroom. And the baby kind of waddles into the courtroom as well, you know, and kind of, you know, climbs up onto the podium. And the judge is like, what are, what are you doing? And the baby says, well, uh, according to British law, if you were present at the scene of the crime, you have the right to testify. And the judge says, yeah, but you're a baby. How could you have been at the scene of the crime? And he says, well, I was conceived at the scene of the crime. And if I was, you know, conceived at the scene of the crime, logically, I was at the scene of the crime. And the judge, you know, one, recollects himself from the fact that he's now having an honest conversation with a talking baby. And, you know, there's some conversation, you know, they look at the British laws and there's, there's no requirement that a witness be a minimum age. You know, if they were at the scene of the crime, they're allowed to testify and being conceived at the scene of the crime is argued to be present at the scene of the crime. So they say, okay, uh, uh, talking baby, uh, you may, uh, you may speak. And the baby says, so, um, my my mother's telling the truth when she says that this dark presence troubled her, and that's what led to me. Uh, don't worry, I was baptized, so my infernal heritage, you know, is not going to make me the Antichrist. That was that was you know what you know we we can't pick our family. You know my 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 daddy's the father of lies. It's it's really quite a sad thing, uh, but we can't pick our family. But I was baptized, so I was saved. Isn't that great? But here's here's the thing. Because of my infernal heritage, I have perfect knowledge of the present and the past, and because of my baptism and the grace of God, who kind of sees that I'm in a special situation, he has gifted me a very special insight into the future. And I see here that we're having this trial because we want a sexually pure community. I think that's a, a noble, noble endeavor. I think that's a really great noble endeavor. And, you know, because I'm nearly omniscient, I can help you all with that endeavor. Uh, so, Mr. Judge, last night at approximately midnight, you were with the miller's wife doing unspeakable acts, and then also the day before you were... <laughs> and immediately the judge, once, you know, his, his sexual crimes are being recited by this baby, you know, declares a mistrial, sets the woman free. Um, I'm not sure if they decided to put the judge on trial uh, after that, but... Uh, immediately the, you know, the woman is set free, uh, and they decide perhaps that for as long as there is an omniscient baby among them, maybe it's not good to enforce purity laws too strictly because we don't know what, what secrets are going to come up, right? And so the woman loves her baby. She's very grateful to her baby for saving her life, and she names her very special baby 
Merlin. And Merlin, the prophet, would become an advisor to a man named King Uther. King Uther, by Egraine, would beget King Arthur, who, with Merlin's help, would become king once, king to come. All right, so I've just uh, detoured. We've, we've been through the Divine Comedy. We've briefly discussed, you know, this idea of magic in our culture, and now, now we're at King Arthur. King Arthur is kind of where Christian fantasy comes from. And I think it is from King Arthur we can kind of see what Christian fantasy is. This story has lots of pagan elements and and even openly admits pagan elements um, that the the baby no one in the story considers it normal for spirits in the forest to be you know impregnating people. you know that's a trope I'm sure ha that has any number of pagan you know, uh, myths behind it. And we also have Merlin, who, you know, is known as a prophet, as a magician, you know, this sort of uh, druidic figure would have had lots of pagan parallels in the pre-Christian religions of Britain. So you have this Merlin character who is begotten by a pagan spirit, is sort of the evolved form of a druid, and who, as we know, serves as a magical figure in the King Arthur saga. And we have him, though, in this story in a very Christian universe. And you notice that what the story does is it takes the old myth of, of Merlin, of this wisdom figure, but shows grace as being greater. So... Magic by itself is going to give birth to the Antichrist, uh, but the sacraments are greater, right? And so, oh, in this way, magic is present in the story, uh, but but Christ is shown as greater. And I think you see this in the Lamorte de Arthur too. I don't know to what extent Sir Thomas Malroy was aware of it, but throughout the Lamorte de Arthur. Merlin is, as a magical figure, kind of a shady dude. He, you know, forecasts to King Arthur that someone who's going to try to take his throne is being born. This leads to King Arthur going like Herod and doing a, a miniature slaughter of the innocents. That backfires when the one baby that survives is uh, Sir Mordred. And so, kind of like King Saul, we, we see the magician comes in to avert the transfer of power, and it immediately backfires. And then we also see, and I think this is another good King Arthur story to note, in all the King Arthur legends, Merlin gets buried by a fellow spellcaster who he was madly in love with, and despite kind of seeing the future, couldn't stop being madly in love with. I've heard both a cave and a tree, depending on the version of the story, but in both cases, Merlin is functionally entombed. This symbol of magic is put in a tomb. And in these Christian myths, uh, magic is put in the tomb and does not come back out. As, you know, we have some fun with Merlin in the beginning of the story, but ultimately, Merlin is put in the tomb, and unlike Jesus Christ, he does not rise from the tomb. 
And so what, what do the King Arthur stories do? They, they kind of represent a transition stone for the, the, the pagan culture they're, they're in. They have all these old myths that are part of their storytelling culture. It's not really possible for a culture to just immediately forget its past and just purge its old culture of everything that was in it and just start fresh from scratch. It would be psychologically, culturally, socially, politically uh, untenable. And so what these what these King Arthur myths kind of do is they kind of represent this weird stepping stone between the pagan world and the Christian world. And I think that's where, if, if, if Christian fantasy can be done, that's kind of the role Christian fantasy plays. It realizes that these pagan myths, these storytelling tropes, are part of the human psyche, they're part of our cultural heritage, they're part of our history, and for all the problems they do, it's not going to be really possible to just purge them all and only read good rationalist literature, maybe mixed in with the lives of the saints, and that's it. So what Christian fantasy does is it, on one hand, recognizes that these stories are part of our heritage, but also realizes the need to place them in service to Christ. And so that's, I think, where Christian fantasy exists. And I think, though, you know, one has to be careful. You know, to what extent are you using... To what extent are you making a stepping stone from the pagan world to the Christian world? And to what extent are you making a stepping stone from the Christian world to the pagan world? Obviously, Dante is nostalgic for Homer and Virgil and, and all the rest. And make no mistake that he is honoring these pagans in the, the Inferno. You know, Virgil is this voice of wisdom for him as he travels through the Inferno. And Dante knows that human reason can only go so far, so Virgil will not be his final guide in the Inferno. Eventually, he will have to leave Virgil behind and receive a, a tour guide who is a symbol of grace, of, of the human intellect raised by grace. But I think, so, uh, you know, we've, we've had a pro-magic side and an anti-magic side, and I think the truth is somewhat maddeningly in the middle. You know, Dante correctly understands that there are pagan works of literature that deserve to be honored for the role they've played in history, for the role they've played in shaping our culture. He recognizes, I believe, that there are certain natural virtues that the best of the pagan stories built in the Romans, and that uh, grace, when grace came to the Roman Empire, grace was able to build on these natural virtues. And so the, the challenge for the, the Christian poet um, the, or the Christian fantasy writer is, given that there are certain stories we want to honor, given that the surreal, the fantastic, can have interesting narrative symbolisms we can use, how do we 
use fantasy and make sure it stays a stepping stone from paganism to Christianity and not a stepping stone from from Christianity to paganism. There is something at stake in this debate. Magical practices at best are fraudulent, at worst cause people to kind of knock on the door of the, the spirit realm and, and open the door to whatever spirit chooses to answer that day. In the, in the physical world, you would never just open the door to your house to you know a crowd of people you, you didn't know. Like, why are these people outside my door? What do they want? Do they have a reason to be here? You wouldn't just open your door to a crowd of, of strangers and just let them flood in. But ma- magical practices functionally encourage people to knock on the door of the spirit realm and, you know, just trust whatever comes through the door. And that is a, a dangerous practice. And at worst, it can lead to some very bad things at best. It can build false hopes in people that will cause real psychological harm as they need to find real sources of hope to deal with life's problems. So thank you all uh, for exploring this chapter of the Divine Comedy with me, and 